Hello and welcome to A New and Ancient Story. This is a podcast, a series of conversations, interviews, and occasionally speeches dedicated to the transformation of self and society. The basic idea is that we are moving from a story of separation to a new story, new for the dominant culture at least, of interbeing. What that means will become apparent as you listen to this series. We explore things like technology, spirituality, agriculture, healing, economics, politics, ecology, relationships, education. I mean, pretty much everything that is undergoing a transition today as our old story nears collapse. If you want to engage these ideas more deeply, you can come to our website, charleseisenstein.net. Hello, everyone. Charles Eisenstein here, back with Orland Bishop to continue our conversation. And I'm just going to launch right in here with a thought I had, and maybe you can just kind of respond to it. But it came from considering the idea that not only people, when they die, but even languages, cultures, lineages, species, ecosystems, places, everything also is still existing in some reality. And it reminded me just of the, in a way, the decline of our civilization from a place originally where the world was thick with beings. The world was populated everywhere by other than human beings. And gradually through empire, through science through monotheistic religion, it became depopulated until all that was left was, in the case of religion, humans and God, and in the case of science, just humans. So the world became completely empty of any other beings. It was just some inanimate, insensate, unconscious matter upon which we were therefore free to imprint our own intelligence and our own design and our own creativity without regard for the beingness of anything else. So this depopulation of reality has been going on for thousands of years. And what it seems very much like you're coming from a place of the world is alive and full of life and full of intelligence. And that perhaps we are in turning right now where having found ourselves in this desolate, barren universe created through our stories and perceptions, we are lonely and in many ways seeking to reconnect and to rejoin the circle of being. So I just wonder if if you have any insights about this, this turning, the reason, like is there a deeper purpose to this thousands of year old journey of loneliness? Like, why do we do that? And what does the turning look like? Wow. I appreciate the question and the reflections into that, Charles, because it's consistent with cosmologies that suggest that it's not only human beings that are going through an initiation on this planet. The entire planet is going through an initiation. So the Earth spends 2,160 years in a constellation. 
and it moved from the constellation of Pisces now into the constellation of Aquarius. While it was in the constellation of Pisces for this 2000 year period, the, 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 the consciousness field under the influence of that constellation was belief. One can say the rays of initiation that permeated the earth was that everything that had self-consciousness had to believe in something and ultimately itself. So it's not a mistake that it happened. It is under the influences of intelligence from that ray of initiation of that er epoch of earth. Mm -hmm. So to believe something, one has to, in a certain way, internalize all of our perception to the degree that it, it extinguishes the source. And I become the believer by extinguishing the source of my belief. So I believe in something because I'm doing it, not that it is inspiring me to believe. I've lost the inspiration and I've only awaken after my belief has been constructed by the inspiration that originally came. And then the believer gets trapped in their own belief because the world appears finished. My thoughts become finished. My experience is finished. And I slept through the creation of it. So this age was influential in giving human beings the dominant religions that have established itself across the world the dominant theories of theories of, of of reality that we have engaged in science and social social um, and cultural life, and it's not a mistake. This is what the Earth required of human beings in that particular age. Now that we move to the age of Aquarians, it's the age of knowing. So the I that I am and that we are have to come into knowing first the source of its knowledge, which is not itself. Ultimately, we realize that, that the intellectual property rights that we now have in culture will be is evolved to become an awareness that what we are doing with the intellect is not just harnessing our own knowing, but participating in a field of knowing that is an open source to all intellect and more so to all sentient souls that will actually experience what a more refined intellect can do, which is communicate with the non-visible the non world. And this, this higher power of the intellect will become more useful in the next 100, 200 years. But mm -hmm. imagine we have 2,000 years to go in the fulfillment of this new potential that people have already been breaking through. We know we have representatives for the last 500 years, individually across the world, pointing that direction back to con, con, you know, harmonizing with the cosmos in this higher use of the intellect. But we're still materialistically oriented because our belief system has cut us off from the realm of being. So you're saying that it was, um in a way, right and necessary, although also very tragic, that we marooned ourselves in the depopulated world, cut off from source, cut off from sources of, of knowledge that are not mediated by structures of belief, but are direct 
and built this castle of information, this castle of belief that was kind of like in the Miyazaki movie. There's like this, I can't remember the title of the movie, the flying, it was like a flying castle. It gets untethered from the source of knowledge and the, sor- the source of materials from which it was built. And, you know, it goes floating off to all kinds of places. And you're saying that this is a necessary evolutionary process. Yes, because belief in itself is not uh, harmful other than when we identify with it in such, uh, such a way that we, we don't experience the I in the belief. We, we experience the belief. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the intention of believing it was for it to become a verb and not a noun. You know, when, when everything becomes a noun and we name it Christianity or Islam or capitalism or socialism or something else, and we name it and we fixed it into the mind as the only paradigm and not understanding that there is a source for all paradigms and it's one source. Yes. So the, the critical thing, I remember one of my teachers say, you know, the, the, the only most meaningful activity is not to find a new paradigm, but to find the paradigm from which all the sources emerge. Right. It is in the eye. Paradigms, because paradigms and archetypes are living beings too that have a lifespan, they evolve over time. And when we cut them off from their source of life, then they also ossify and become skeletons like dead skeletons of what, of what they could be. Exactly. And in the ancient world, this, the, the idea of the paradigm or the paradigma was the soul. The soul was the paradigm, not what the soul knows. Mm-hmm. So when we now identify with what the soul knows, the content as the paradigm, and not the process of paradigma, which is to create knowing, then we are limited by the fact that our own knowledge takes over the power of its own you know, source. Okay, so suppose that we want to um, re-engage with a world thick with beings. We want to re-engage with, the, with these sources of knowledge these high, that enable higher mental functions to, to operate. It seems that the, that the way that traditional people did that was through various ceremonies. And we today do not have ready-made ceremonies. We can, and sometimes people will imitate ceremonies from other cultures or try to carry out ceremonies that they learned from Native Americans that are supposed to be communicating with elemental beings or, or other beings, but it kind of feels fake when they do it. And often I'm very uncomfortable in during those invocations. So what advice could you offer people who ha- have this strong desire to reconnect to the other beings of the world, yet feel like, like as I do, uncomfortable with importing uh, ceremonial practices from other cultures? I, I think it will be a huge challenge in our cultural time. Um, cultural appropriation is a huge 
uh, crisis point mm. uh, for our present age. And even though we do have to recapitulate this entire 2,000-year period in the process of coming back to the, the higher function of, as I said, the higher function of the intellect is to integrate the entire collective knowledge. So at some point, all of these pieces have to be shared and to become coherent as a world power, as a world religion, as a world, <laughs> as a global factor. So if we still withholding, even though our peace works, if we withhold it, we're actually slowing down the process of this evolution because everything in the higher function of the intellect, there's no yours and mine, it's ours. It has to come into a shared reality if it's going to pass beyond the current conflict. Yes. But even, yes. If, we don't, even if we don't deal with, with the content of what to use, we come down to the one activity that is universal, which is attentiveness. When I give attention, I'm actually invoking the spiritual world from the source in me to the source of every other being that communicates. Attention attracts attention. So when I give attention, I'm actually concentrating in a point where every other possible intelligence can participate. Every other being feels my attentiveness. If that becomes sacred enough, I'm actually in a new experience originating from my own place and time and yet universal. And so what it does, it, it harmonizes all the levels because it doesn't, attention doesn't require content other than concentration of more attention. Yes. And so the field, the new field for a new creative encounter. And from that attentiveness, the appropriate ceremonies will arise because you're no longer needing to copy the ceremony. You're actually, in a way, copying the source of the ceremony or you're, you're doing the same thing that traditional people did to discover their ceremonies. Right. So because perceptions have changed, even, even indigenous peoples with the ceremonies are also limiting their ceremonies by the belief that there are their ceremonies and the rest of the world. Right. And so this split was not there in the original ceremony. So to do a ceremony for myself while the rest of the world is outside of the ceremony is still part of the last age, the part of the belief that I'm doing something for myself. Nobody does anything for themselves, really, if we understand the nature of the spiritual world. Mm -hmm. So every language is heard somewhere else by some other being who listens to it. So if I only invoke my ancestors, well, what happened to the other ancestors who are listening? There is no such limitation. Indigenous people can't just pray to their own ancestors. It doesn't work that way in the spiritual world. It works like they were in the mind. But that's just a belief of the mind that I can only invoke my own ancestors. Every person that's dead is an ancestor, regardless of the stream of culture from which right. died. And that's 
Right, because every person who is dead was part of creating the psychic field that we were born into. Right. So everything that they've done in the world is, has been imprinted on our, on our genes, on our bodies as we, as we came into the world. Although I do think, and I think that this is, has become more and more true as the various cultural universes that had existed on Earth are kind of melding or into one. And I actually am kind of of two minds on this because uh, before long distance communication was ubiquitous, it was to some extent conventionally thinking to some extent possible to maintain a world story without reference to other cultures' world stories. It was as if there were multiple universes coexisting at the same time on Earth. Yet they're not fully separate either because there are esoteric practices and, 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 and ways of tapping into hidden threads that connect various universes that meant that it really never was true that we were, that cultures, even if they were halfway across the world, it was never true that they were actually separate. They were still in a kind of communication that's not recognizable to us today. So maybe it's not true. I'm just thinking out loud here. Maybe it's not true that we are in any way more globalized than we were before. Still, by invoking one's own ancestors, couldn't that just be kind of a, a portal accessible to the rational mind through which you can speak to all ancestors? It's like I'm speaking to all ancestors, all ancestors through the means of speaking to my own ancestors who I can visualize and conceive of better. Yeah, I, I think you're, you're correct about both. It's, it's, and this is, the, this is the challenge of understanding ancestral wisdom. In, in that there's five generation of from memory in the physical body. So all of us have our personal family heritage ancestry in our physical body. Once you move beyond those five generations, the spiritual world is a unity. Mm -hmm. So all the realm of the dead is a unity beyond that five generation. So what begins to happen from there is that we move now to the psychic realm beyond the physical memory body to the astral space whereby communication is open. This is the global field. It's not that my mind is the global field. No. What is the global field is the astral body, the psychic field. And so there are things that I, that I experience actually more in sleep. From our earlier conversation, we were talking about what happens in sleep. In a sleep, I'm more of a global being than when I'm awake. Mm -hmm. Because when I'm awake, I come back in my physical sense perception and in my body memory, and it limits me from being aware of even my deeper aspirations and dreams and destiny that I may have to even abandon the ideas around my body to be in a harmony with a new potential. This is the initiation step. Most people, if they know what the initiation is going to be, will not want it because they'll have to make a personal sacrifice of things that are so close and intimate for the identity that I now carry. So in the preservation of the identity, most people are denying their own initiatory path. 
because it means losing what I now have and gaining something different. This struggle is where our intellectual consciousness now is, whereby I'm wanting more and more to hold on to the old story because it works for my identity. And those who are on the edge, knowing that's potentially capable of assimilating other levels of identity, um, find it, well, which one do I use? Do I use yoga? Do I go back to the Indian tradition? Do I go back to the, to the Egyptian traditions? Do I go back to the indigenous traditions? How far do I go back where my initiation is not tied to my body, but tied to the psychic field that could radically transform my body to be able to be open to this future initiation? So this is this in the internal struggle. How do we find a content that will replace the, you know, the, the challenging inner dialogue that our own bodies are generating, which is, I cannot live only with my ancestors because for the most part, this is the disruption our own bodies, at this point, the materially focused self is the obstruction to the higher psychic self that has reached a global plane of consciousness that can then harmonize other processes for our own healing and the radical creativity that our will can embrace by taking on the new power of humanity. Thank you for that, Roland. I'm going to have to uh, go back and listen to that again to absorb all of it. But it is provoking some thoughts in me about this, the necessity of sacrifice in the process of transformation, which, as you said, is necessary because if you really want to change, then something of who you are right now has to fall away. And that, from the ego's perspective, is a pretty scary thing because that thing that's going to fall away is part of the identity. It's not just like some you know, disconnected possession, but it's part of the identity. But I think that when the moment, so I think that there's a kind of an intelligence and an organic rhythm and pace to the succession of initiations that happens to a person. And that when an initiation is coming and when one is, has ripened in the old structures of self and identity to the point where they no longer serve, then the these pieces of identity become burdens. They don't feel good anymore. And we're like a snake that's ready to shed and feeling really confined in its skin. And yeah, I'm afraid to let go of these things, but I'm sick and tired of them. I'm sick and tired of these structures of my life, my relationship, my job, whatever it is. And, and the way I think about myself, the way I see myself, the way I construct an identity and guide other people to perceive me in a certain way, like I'm tired of all of that. that um, impatience, I think, is an invitation to the appropriate initiation, which is waiting f- to happen. That's like, okay, you asked for it now. I'm ready, and I will come to you. And then the structures, to some extent, dissolve. And we don't have in our culture, and you, and you mentioned like, well, you know, is it yoga? Is it this? Is it that? We don't have a strong cultural holding to be initiated into. So people 
And this is one thing I work with in, in, in retreats and things. The, I call it the space between stories, where the old story, the old self, the old reality has fallen away. And there isn't a new one yet. And because this process is not well recognized in our culture, people will be told and will think, well, there's something wrong with me, or maybe I'm crazy, and I've got to get my act together. And, and they'll even be diagnosed with depression or, or some other psychiatric ailment. So what do you, what, what would you say to this, to this, like, what happens after the initiation in this culture or, and what could happen that would be better? So, and so I, I, it's so, it's so amazing that human beings know how to create rituals. So this, this, this is the basic process. When forgotten, a ritual is remembered. So the, 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 the ritual that was being remembered in a certain way that, that well, people call it the 12-step program. You create a community so that people could find a space to tell their stories of their addiction and their loss and their dispossession of their will. And what happens by attention being given to them as they tell their story they re-enter into the initiatory path more consciously. And what happens in that dedication of will, they walk through the steps to the self again. Now, if you apply the 12 steps to any culture, it works. Why? Because it's still about a person telling their story of what was lost. And then what happens is that in this vessel of community, belonging is felt. So we're starting again a new kind of cultural renaissance, not to recreate the culture that was, but to create a culture of individuals who have experienced the dispossession, the losses of everything that was their birth identity by going through the worst conditions of culture. And, and so what they're redoing is rebuilding the self from an internal question of need to be free of something that was possessing the will. Now, we've done it for the things that we call dysfunctions in the culture, alcoholism, drug addiction, sex addiction, and all these things. But we are not doing it for the everyday mind. The everyday mind is the most powerful addiction we have. The mind that tells us that, this, that the reality is more materially centered than spiritually centered. The mind that tells us that this is the other and I'm better. That mind that's, that puts something between everything and limits itself is the most powerful addiction. It's taken 2,000 years to develop it. Mm-hmm. It's not going away very easily. We've actually created corporations to own the world. We've created all kinds of ways. You know, we've created schools and tell people that their intellect should be private and that they shouldn't share their knowledge while they're studying. We educate children to believe, become selfish. 
These are the highest, and then we give them grades. We give them an A if they're more selfish than someone else who fails because they have a need to learn from their fellow students. All of the things in our culture promotes this habit. Yeah, it's the habit of owning the world. Right. Or owning my knowledge, owning yeah. my story. Right. I mean, all are different. Like the, the system of property and capital is, is, is just another dimension of the system of nouns and categories and the belief in an objective world outside of ourselves that can be divided up into analytic categories and manipulated. And same thing with science, same thing with medicine on the body, same thing with politics. So we could apply the 12 steps to everything that we just mentioned. And it will, work, it will show that these ideas have had a powerful influence on my free will, on my, in my perception of reality, and the cognition that follows. And that I've actually been trapped by it, pursuing deeper and deeper self-interest. So by midlife, it becomes a crisis. My belief becomes a crisis by the time I'm in my midlife age, you know, 49 to 56 years old, we're in the review. Of yes. Am I going to die believing this way or am I going to radically initiate myself to become the person that I'm to become for the world? So regardless of whether I'm in the, you know, the modern society or I'm in some indigenous practice, the initiation still happens. The question still comes, how divided I am. And can I remember wholeness at a level in which I pursue some collective decision to really share my story? More so with myself. You know, the denial that I am this special person because I believe in this story is not going to hold all through our life. Our belief will be disrupted. Mm -hmm. A true question in the inner life of the person, and then I'll have to find the source and the answer. The true question. I'd, I'd like to just repeat that. What is the true question in the inner life of the person? It's not a question that all of a sudden appears in middle age. It's a question that's kind of been there the whole time, and then the the ways of keeping it at bay stop working when one reaches middle age and there it is there it is and you there's no way to avoid it anymore you can't go on a success trip to avoid it uh you can't narcotize it out of existence you can't bribe it to be quiet for a while because look how much money i'm making and look how many people love me and like that question the true question, which I think it might take, used, like, take a slightly different form for different people, but probably it's usually some variation of what am I here to do? Why am I here? Who am I? It, there it is. I think every middle-aged person knows what I'm talking about, and probably even if you're not middle-aged yet, you yeah. can feel it coming. Right. So the, the age, you're, you're right. Even, I mean, there are young people who are asking this question because the arc of their life 
the archaeologists said that, that you know to be in their twenties is midlife because they don't expect to live a certain. This is a projection about how when I'm going to die, mm -hmm. and can I become myself before I die? It's a legacy question about what am I taking beyond my achievement. I'm taking the I beyond my achievement, and if the I if I am not my achievements, then who am I? Mm -hmm. What am I if I'm not my body? It really does seem, though, that this question is also very, very strong in young people, like late adolescence, early 20s. And then it's like a burning question. And, and how, what am I here to do? What's my mission? And then somehow it, it gets... Uh, numbed or or suppressed for a decade or two not in everybody's life journey but that that's what happens a lot so why is it so evident in the early 20s or is this am i confusing two different things no you're you're quite right about this by by adolescence we the what what starts puberty and adolescence is the birth of the astral body is the birth of the future self into the physical so the physical birth happens, and the body matures, the organs for receiving birth, a rebirth, awakening of the chemistry, become now a creator in the world. So puberty is the awakening of the creator self. Puberty, you know, the hormones come in and different layers of psyche are awakened. When this chemistry begin, becomes active now, it begins to touch into the future. The, the collective consciousness, the superconsciousness fields. This is what between 14 and 28 years old begins to happen. Mm -hmm. I begin to search the world for who will create the community for my initiation. Now, when I'm educated in a culture that says, get more for yourself, I begin to limit the social significance of my life. I begin to move from looking for other people for looking for more opportunities for myself. So the culture gets in the way of the, of the quest that is supposed to drive a young person. Right, because this says, if you weren't born with the right inheritances, and even if you were, you should get more of that because that's going to make you the self that you ought to be. Get more for yourself is the education from 14 to 28. Right. So there's this longing that gets displaced or, or channeled toward something that will never meet the longing. Right. Yeah. So young people wants to find a group. The group is how we enter into the initiatory field, the psychic field, for learning from others how they think, how they perceive, how they engage creativity. And that part protects the ego as it develops, working on a higher sense perception of the social question, how can we share reality? So if, if I don't support the sharing of reality, 
the ego formation that the young person will have in their 20s would be, I need more power for myself. And then you make them greedy by, by the time they live into, into those, those parts, social aim becomes, again, focus on the self. And then I become now just an, uh, you know, a person pursuing more power from the adolescent perspective here. Yeah. And then that lasts until the midlife when they say the, 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 the chemistry comes back to where it was at 14 years old to say, okay, I'll give you another chance to be the creator that you ought to be in the world. Yeah, it's another chance. That's what's happening. It's another chance. It's not yeah. a, a failure, but it's actually the repeated opportunity to find again the community of belonging to internalize the deeper significance of the life. Yeah. So it's, it's such an irony here. And I would almost say a crime that first we're born into conditions like our cultural conditions that steer us toward a selfish expression of ego and deny us the group induction into our purpose. And then the ego is blamed as the bad guy and spiritual practice becomes again something that you do on your own by yourself to it's like it's a setup the remedy is as bad as the cure uh, as the disease in a way when what really would open things up would be to understand that so many of the things that we are battling in ourselves or trying to improve in ourselves are not we're not understanding the source of them the source is for many things, not just greed and selfishness, but it's the cutoff from various forms of connection, connection especially to community, to other people, uh, and also to this living world. And so in the absence of, and this is you know, what I, how I've thought about greed, it's a very natural response to conditions of scarcity. And if we are not met and, and held in a web of interbeing, then something, we're gonna be hungry for something, we're gonna be missing something, we're gonna want to find this thing and offered an endless array of substitutes for the thing that we really want. And then when the results are ugly, convinced, we are convinced that the problem was the greed, the problem was ourselves. So never actually finding the the root of the of the disease yeah you're correct about that it, it is the it is a loss of the self the i that creates scarcity when i no longer could perceive creativity in me because greed greed limits the creativity and what it does it 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 becomes about the opportunity to see something using the psyche but then the mind gets more possessed by the power of the opportunity and then mm -hmm. i become it becomes a monopoly i want to take over that thing before someone else sees it or knows it so i'm actually robbing myself of a healthy development when i see something 
and take advantage of it before others perceivably. This, all this is really just in perception because it's not really true that the opportunity, I'm the only one seeing it. Everyone sees it. But some people just don't react impulsively. Or it might just be the, the opportunity will come back again because that's the spiritual world. Mm-hmm. One of the principles of the spiritual world is repeated opportunity. It doesn't have to wait till you know, 10, 15 years from now. I could actually invoke the opportunity every day that will support my initiation. Because it's about your willingness to bring time here. Time could always be here. However, whatever future time we imagine could be here now just by the power of intention. And so the, the, the part of ourselves that we call future is the astral. And it moves in between sleeping and waking all the time, trying to support the right impulse of intention so that I could actually bring time into this moment of decision and release my creativity. I'm just thinking of people listening to this and there might be a certain voice that says, well, this is really esoteric. Um, And yeah, maybe it's interesting, but we've got real problems in the world. And maybe we should, you know, save philosophizing for later. Like there's that kind of cynical viewpoint. And I want to uh, mention here that you are not an armchair philosopher or nor do you spend most of your time in these in esoteric contemplation, but you're doing like really hands-on practical on the ground work in lots with gangs, with young men coming out of prison, youth rites of passage kind of stuff, right? Like, so I'm, where I'd like to, I'd like, I'd like you maybe to offer a bridge, like these things that you've been talking about, how does that inform the work that you're doing with actual people in, in Los Angeles? Yeah, we, we, we take for granted the nature of our being because, again, we don't observe all the things that would be considered esoteric that we do so effortlessly, like this dialogue. To put intention into speech and to have the trust that we will communicate something that the other will understand is an esoteric science. Mm-hmm. There's no evidence that what I'm saying is real, other than our belief that we understand each other. But it's more than belief. We are actually having an experience across a field of nothingness. So I'm not putting words in your thoughts. You're thinking my words. You're rethinking my words. You're not hearing me. Hearing is a chemical process. The sound is transferred into processes that then becomes a chemistry to the brain and then into consciousness. So consciousness takes up a chemistry and decipher it into meaning. What is more occult than that? What is more esoteric than that? What, where does our feelings go and emerge from? The human body is designed to bridge reality 
between two or more people. Everything of our interaction requires a non-dual space for it to make meaning and sense. We're really not touching each other other than through the chemistry of life, as I said. So the consciousness of this enables you to communicate more effectively with people and for the intention of your communication, you're, you're able to hold something very strongly that creates an invitation to the other person. Yes. And, and we, the reason why we create relationships outside of the ones that we are born into, because we have a kind of inner perception that they will provide for us a context for something that will emerge as future. We have a future sense in every relationship that we try to form. This is the power of another body, not the brain. The brain is not doing this part. The brain, the brain calculates its, its communication strategy but it doesn't necessarily attract the person. The attraction is an, 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 an inner feeling that is constantly searching for possibilities and then probabilities and then actuality. This forming of layers that then become reality in a moment when a person is present with clear evidence that they've created some experience out of their aspirations is really a kind of, as I said, a non-dual space within consciousness. And, and we can observe if we stop denying the fact that the, the I, that is not when I point to the I, I'm not pointing to me, I'm not pointing to my body, I'm not pointing to my mind. When I use the word I, I'm referencing my will, ultimately. But we don't know that. We don't refine the I because we build so many identity factors around it that when I say I, 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 I don't pay attention deeply enough to reference a being that is actually becoming. And this becoming nature is there for everyone. And I could support the becoming of another person by observing it, observing that everything about their life is trying to overcome a habit of denial, even about knowing, and suspend that. So uh, there's no judgment if a person doesn't believe in esoteric science or philosophy. However, I know their attention is assessed esoteric science and philosophy. At some point, they will ask a question. And my responsibility is to wait for the question. And, and not put it into an answer, a fixed, finished answer, but to support the question with a question, who is asking? When you ask a question, who is asking? Or is it Jesus, you or your ancestors? Is it you 
as from your past or your future. Because one could understand the need of the human being when the question is asked. If he doesn't make it the need to just have an answer, but a need to become alive, if the question is about becoming alive, then you answer it from the highest point of opportunity. Answer it from an ancestral level and see what happens to that person's creative life. Answer it from a standpoint of their future self. Why? Because as an esotericist, my responsibility is to answer the question from the level that will give the person more freedom. Particularly to think about their own question. Your responsibility is to answer it at a level that will give them more freedom. That's uh, really the opposite of what we learn in school, which is to give the factually correct answer or the right answer. Yes. And you're not necessarily even giving an answer, but you're pointing the attention to somewhere where, where the attention had not gone before. So if, I mean, I, so I can imagine, say, a young man who's in a difficult situation, maybe his life is in danger, um, maybe he's in the illegal drug trade, and he's been hustling things for a while and getting by, staving off one crisis after another, putting the problem into the future, and now, now everything's all coming to a head. And he's in a desperate situation and he comes to you. And maybe he, the question he would ask, what question would he ask? Do you think? Well, uh, uh, most most people who who is is either at that point is probably life or death. There's a death question somewhere there, and the question is: Do you want to live? Because initiation is about living into something. So, at, then the question is: Okay, to live, you have to make sacred something. You have to sacrifice something. You have to give up something. What are you willing? What are you willing to give up? Mm -hmm. So my, my my exploration would be okay. Let us find the most willing level and see what can occur there. How much life comes in when I'm willing to live? If I'm only willing to live for my body, maybe that's not enough. Because someone wants you dead. Your enemy wants you dead. So it can't be just about your body. For your family. Well, what is your relationship like with them? If you want to live for them, you have to love them and deepen the relationship with them. If you want to live for society, so to contribute something to society, then what is your work? So the, the more we, we, we bring the power of the psyche into living, there's a more protection. The timing that their enemy has to kill them get, changes, time changes. Like they wouldn't be found. Why? Because they're in a larger constellation of life energy. It's when, I, when I've, I've lost everything and I'm just this empty shell of a person with a, only a body, they, and their life becomes more at risk. Why? Because everybody can find that. Everybody can predict where they are at a particular time. 
oh, just go by the corner, you'll see them standing right there. They do the same thing every day. And they're dead from that point on. Mm -hmm. To change the life, one has to change the future sense of the life. And a person must be so many places that if a person contemplates where to find them, wow, I don't know. I can't locate them in the body. Their, their dream is too big to be located in the body. I mean, that's the same question that you were talking about in, in the context of middle age. Like, why do you want to live even? Right. Like, why? What are you here for? And if you don't have a good enough reason, then why should you live? Yeah. As a healer, when I'm, when I'm dealing with healing, healing, a healing question for a person, the exploration is how much denial is in the personal unconscious? Because if there's so much denial, it's hard to put new energy healing into the person because they've completely denied the thing that was trying to heal them before. Mm -hmm. I have to find how many efforts of healing did you deny and can I just put all of them back in touch with you so that you can see healing is a thread of your whole life. It's not one moment. Things have been trying to heal us for a long time, but we've denied it. And now the illness have accumulated. One can say, okay, then how do we actually reactivate the internal memory of all the opportunities of well-being that came before? Because that what's in the personal unconscious is actually a treasure. It's not to say you failed. No, no one has failed. Everybody has stored up their future in their personal unconscious. And if I could access it with some question, what happened in the past that you said no to your life and to the meaning that your life, can we open that door again and let the energy flow? Because nothing is more powerful than memory. What happened in your past that you said no to life? Yeah. That reminds me of a, of a process that I lead people in sometimes where we go back in memory to an event where the guidance is where you were acting from a habit of separation or who you were at that moment is not who you really are and who you want to be not who you are becoming. And then without going through the whole process, one of the parts of the process is to rewrite a new memory uh, that feels true. Yeah. That of, well, in which you acted from a different place and acted in a different way. And then uh, have people, you know, actually like physically experience that memory as if it were real and, and people share it, you know, and, and what's amazing is that people, it feels true. It doesn't feel like you were lying when you said, when you narrate this completely different stream of events. And the we, we, reason we do that is to, well, I don't know, this, I don't want to go through the whole thing, but one of the, my motivations for doing this is to create a precedent for the next time that this is going to happen or something like this is going to happen. Because it will if it is like a healing that's been trying to, trying to get in, like you were saying, for a long time, then it's going to try again and offer a new opportunity to, to apply the will to live 
from a different place or into a different person than have been in the past. Yes. So all these techniques, what you, what you have done is revive initiatory techniques. You've put it into your books, the written texts. Now for most, many, many, many books have techniques in them to awake the chemistry that contemplation generates and move creativity out of these fixed states. We've become a literary culture and in the literature of our culture, some of them remain true to the initiatory pathway that then when a person's reading the book, they actually are recovering memories. So this is what the written text holds the possibility for. It can actually take the reader from what they're reading to the source that inspired the author of the book. Mm -hmm. And then they live in a kind of inner imagination. There are times when you forget the reading and you go into the imagination that the reading is in. Right. It's not about, about offering them a different belief. Right. It's not a is to access the, the true paradigm, which is the imaginative level of their own attention that then allows inspiration to come. And then intuition is the, is the author that they've been looking for. They may not even remember anything that they read in the book. Right. And it doesn't yeah. matter because all written texts, see, and this is the thing about the book. In the, in the, in the, if you examine what's on the page, are symbols. But we understand that symbols have a powerful process in them to make the human being awake. And one can say literally, okay, this is what the book said, based given the language that it's written in, but what does it mean? The meaning doesn't come with the book. Hmm. The meaning is in the reader's consciousness. And the relationship. And the relationship that then is invoked by reading. So this is the power of authors like yourself who, who put into these texts symbolic steps to move to the ideal level of consciousness, bringing the real levels and the personal levels with it. It's not that the person steps, steps away from their own experiences, that they bring their own experience with it. There's been so much in the unconscious that we have forgotten that this book is actually the essential book to help us remember all of it. Right. And it's not just like, so that we're not mistaking you. It's not that like, I don't, I don't have like step one, step two, step three, step four in the book. It's implicit. It's in the book. It takes the reader through a series of, of contemplations and a series of, you know, all they have to do is read it and these steps are happening. But this is, the, this, is, this is in your creativity. Your creativity is lawful because you're following it lawfully. You're, you're, you're creating an initiatory framework just by the love for that work. Roland, you, you wrote a book, The Seventh Shrine, yeah. uh, which I read. It's definitely one of those books that lodges quite deep in the consciousness I mean, I could say some of what the book is about and what it says, and I remember you know, some of it on the explicit level, but it is much more a book that kind of comes in and operates mysteriously. And one thing that 
you talk about in the book uh, that came up a few times uh, in my mind as we were talking is this sacred conversation. I can't remember the word now. Is it an I, I believe? Indaba. In Indaba. Indaba, yes. Indaba, yeah. Can you tell us, tell me and whoever is listening to this, what an Indaba is? Yeah, I appreciate it. I was uh, invited to one in 1998, actually all the way to South Africa. I received a telephone call from um, Vizu Mazulu Kredomutwa. And I had not met him, I had not known of him before. Um, he, was, I, I was, he was introduced to me by a friend from Congo. And then I received a call that I had to come to South Africa for an Endaba. And when I went there, I spent five days with him and three of those five days were really in this process of attunement with me at a level in which I had to, I was invited to remember as much as I could. And I had shared with him this vision I had after one morning meditation about the seven shrines. And he was the one who filled in the pieces of it with me that I had written my birth story. He said, you know, you had remembered so much in that meditation that you wrote what you were thinking as a soul being before birth. So what the seventh shrine had to do with faith, my own process to say, I'm not going to rely on evidence for my consciousness or evidence in the contemporary culture, I would not even rely on it for my time in which I'm living. I'm gonna rely on some future sense for the evidence that will allow me to think. And so none of the belief structures that, that I adapted to, or not even belief, one of the pathways of my life was that I'm going to orient my will towards my heart. I'm going to do what is good, not just what is right, even if I don't benefit from it. I'm not going to allow my mind to determine the paradigm of my belief. And I remembered and did that at five years old. I remember it to the moment when it happened. And since then, I kept my intention clear enough to say, I would choose something even if it causes me not to have and see what happens in this time and space of that reality. So this is what the seven shrine is. The, and Indaba is a process. It was the, the term is a Zulu word that means I have something important to tell you. Mm. But who says that? It's the spiritual world that says, I have something important to tell you. They're always trying to tell us something important that has to be integrated into reality. So the word is points to beings who remain invisible that reminds us of the higher purpose of our lives. And then with an elder like he was to me, he's able to orient my awareness how to listen more deeply to that. And then how to listen to others. So an endaba is also, uh, you know, conversation between two or more people about stories, this, you know, telling children stories, but it's also a kind of investigation. 
we can go into and investigate. Let us go and research this future. That's an Indaba. If I understand you correctly, you're, what you came to in that meditation, the, that you were going to put your will on living according to what was good through the communication of your heart, that was not something that you just decided in 1998. You were recalling, remembering um, a decision that you were born into, that you made at birth, and that was crystallized at age five yeah. into consciousness. Yes, I remembered it at age five. Because you were in kindergarten, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah and, and, and a cognize, I witnessed, I witnessed the moment when the teacher and me were in this dialogue. And she wanted my mind to be under her guidance. And when I wasn't following it, she wanted to punish me for not following her guidance. And I thought to myself, why would she do something her heart is telling her is not true? Why would she want me not to be me? And I said to myself, I would not let my mind betray my heart. And I woke up the next day, a couple hours earlier, and I concentrated my attention to such a level in which I had a kind of precognition of what people will be thinking and doing. And I was observing keenly everything. And I only allow my will to go with what I know is true because I saw the deception in most of the things that my culture was trying to educate me about. And I said no to it consciously, even if it meant that it appears as though I failed. Yeah, so you woke up two hours early to prepare because you knew that there was going to be multiple invitations, pressures that day to not say and do what was true, but instead to conform to, the, to, these, to these pressures that other people were putting on you. So you needed to, to kind of prepare yourself. Yeah, and as a child, and, and I, right through my adolescence, there was not any significant disruption of that process. I was so careful not to agree with anything that will diminish that level of attentiveness. And so I didn't have all the habit issues that you know, all my friends around me and, and siblings around me had, the impulses to just, I had time to think and become an observer of the environment at a level in which I knew what wasn't working and what can work. How, how long did you have to wake up two hours early every day to do that before it became a habit? Oh, it, 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 it actually, you know, it's, it, I, 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 it's not even so much a habit, it's still my will. If I'm tired and I set the alarm clock, I wake up before it, I do not want something else to wake me. It's, it's just, just an inner trust that yes, I, I am careful that I'm tired, but I, re I have an inner memory that I want to utilize. I will remember tomorrow to wake up at this time. And if circumstances are such that, then the alarm clock is gonna wake me. But, and so I rely on it in case I forget, because forgetfulness happens. But my, my responsibility is to remember. Well, I guess my question was, does it still take two hours of preparation? Like, it, like did you 
get up every morning when you were five? I, I do it now all day. When I'm not in dialogue, I'm remembering because at some point I will come back into interaction with the world. And so I've increased in my practice, Ndaba now is, is always attentively giving attention to what's emerging because reality is always changing. I don't ever predict things to be the same. Mm-hmm. And so part of the preparation is to have enough attentiveness forces to keep observing that things are changing. So, so I want to maybe interpret this a little bit for people listening. The takeaway from Orland's story, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the takeaway from Orland's story is not, okay, everybody, start doing two hours of meditation every morning to focus your will on living from your heart. It's to, the takeaway is to allow this story to penetrate you and it will invite you to orient your will in the same way. It will speak to you. It will constantly be there. And from that, you may develop and be attracted to the appropriate practices for you to refine your will and direct your will according to the invitation that is implicit in Orland's story. But you're not prescribing a practice. No, no. But the opportunity is there. For the, when the heart decides on something, it's deciding mostly to make a sacrifice. To, to, to give up something for the other's benefit. It might be subtle, but it, sometimes it might be significant as Dr. King's path to say, you know, I'm going to give up these things so that I could put myself in the midst of a deeper societal transformation. And there's a risk in that. He lost his life in it. Everyone doesn't have that level of responsibility. Sometimes it's just to give up one habit for one part of the day so that the life itself could flow towards you. Most people should say, don't do it, even if you're not doing it for the other, do it for yourself. Don't let the habit block all of your life. The sacrifice could be something that you feel ready to sacrifice. It's something that feels like it's in the way, feels like you don't need it anymore feels like it's not part of who you're ready to be. So it can be kind of a natural thing. It's not like you necessarily have to go searching for something to sacrifice. I find that it's, there's a, there's, it's similar to the feeling of giving the right gift at the right moment where it's like the gift wants to be given and it's, and that can be perceived with, openness and attention. And that doesn't mean that there's not like a little bit of in the giving. In fact, that can be a sign that it's a good gift. Yeah. And I think the, and a sacrifice in a way is a gift as well, right? Well, that's, that's the part. It's, it's, it's actually feels like the, the space you're creating a, an, an inner space where there's nothing but the self. And so it's it, to become selfless 
is to lose the thing that you were identifying with as the self and then feeling this this inner space of openness that the self fills in the real self fills into that ultimately that is what the deeper belonging we want to have so what the, the giving away is actually a to a two-way uh, a kind of reciprocity I give away the thing that's obstructing me receiving something mm-hmm. so it is a reciprocity and it's hidden reciprocity is hidden in in our cultural life in a huge way at this present time right in our cultural life it looks like that you give something then too bad for you right gone yeah right so the spiritual world has hidden itself in this gesture for our current age that we don't lose anything by giving away what we even think is you know our primary holding we actually gain more because the self that is abundance gets established and then what happens is that I can then from my own inner experience of trust with that find other ways of giving and other ways of receiving I'm thinking uh, maybe we're almost done for today mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah yeah and I'm yeah. wondering though if there's one more I'm just feeling in to see if there's mm-hmm. one more one more thing to ask or one more thing to be said I mean I'm thinking about asking you about Shade Tree Multicultural Foundation is there anything you'd like to say about about that, Norland? Yeah, well, you, you, so Shaytree Shaytree was founded to hold sanctuary, which is which is the in the deepest sense a place where a person is invited to be with themselves at the deepest level. So, if I'm holding a sanctuary for a person, I'm I'm, I'm actually dissolving all the expectations of what they should be but for a societal space when i'm holding sanctuary for society i'm actually inviting the most complex conflicts into ceremony to say let us take this conflict and go through the alchemical process with it let us take all the cultural conflicts and say let us go through the alchemy of what are the facts first and then what has changed since this encounter of conflict and then what has emerged from the self who has to bear that conflict what are you asking of the other now that you are a representative not of the conflict itself but the future that can emerge from it mm-hmm. So Shaytri does this process with, with societal forces, economic, political, to say, let us take up the conflict and transmute it, because that is, that is the new foundation for a multicultural reality in which people have different inheritances, but a potential shared future. How do we enter that shared future if our inheritances are so different? And so you're inviting people to be representatives of that shared future. Of that shared future, yes. And that's another way 
to access. For me, the I mean, this is going back to mm-hmm. to how we started the conversation to access the field that the question, "What am I here for?" opens up. Yes, because this shared future is what I'm here for, and why I, I and anyone. I mean, this is you know, I'm speaking universally mm-hmm. here. Why I have the particular configuration of gifts and circumstances that I have. It's um, as part of the evolutionary totality that has, you know, deployed each one of us in exactly the right place and time. Yeah. This is, I mean, I relate to a future as a being also that has, and, and understanding that there are many possible futures that coexist yes. at the same time. Each and some of them are very, I'm not sure, actually, I'm not sure if if you would 100% agree with this, but the way I see it is that there are many of these beings that we call the future that are mutually contradictory. Some of them are very dark, uh, dystopian, and some are luminous, and they all exist, and whichever one we align with and bow into service to is strengthened in its relationship to the present and the timeline leading from here to that particular future becomes stronger as we orient toward it and remember it because in a way, you know, our memory is not only capable of accessing the past, it's also capable of accessing the future. So as we remember it and align ourselves with it, we strengthen it as a reality and then find or notice opportunities to act in service to that actually happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you seem also to have like a certain view of an inevitability of a certain one of these futures as part of this epochal um, movement from age to age. And I'm not sure how those things um, fit. Yeah, yeah. So, so the, the, these large epochs—it's it, really qualities inherent in the beings who guide them. So, so we're, we're still initiated by beings of light. So, one can say a constellation uh, of, of Pisces was a, was an age in which certain beings would take up giving their substance to the will of humanity. One can say is, is light. What does light have the potential to become? Anything. <laughs> Anything. It, it's like, what does a word become, you know, in consciousness, uh, meaningful? So if we take up light to the highest potential of it, it becomes our will. And so in the will is actually a collective potential for harnessing the full cosmic radiation and manifesting it in a moment on earth. So the, the earth itself is a space for manifestation of cosmic intelligence. What is this cosmic intelligence like? It's the constellation in which the earth lives, but it's also all of the other factors that um, this prism of energy can generate. So it's not just one thing. All the ages could be accessed but we have to access with a different paradigm because the soul 
chooses time as this highest purpose, meaning it will, it will actually have to fulfill something more about time rather than just place. Mm-hmm. So the, the time energy is that we have a higher knowing that's possible now for every, anything that has to do with my motive. So basically you are affirming that all of these features exist in some sense. The, 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 so the potential is, and then choice is. So I can choose out of all the potential one thing. What is always true about the future is that I could be in it. <laughs> yes. Or we could be in it. It's not that it's something different. It's that we are the same people in every future. So it's both. It's the, it's, it's the, um, it is an inevitability if we choose it. Right. Yes. And then it becomes, in my understanding, it becomes a matter of fully choosing it because right now, most people are not in full possession of their choosing faculties. Right. It's only maybe a little bit useful to say, do your best to choose this particular future and here's what you need to do to enact that choice. Like maybe even prior to that, or at least concurrent with that, there's the necessity to become more conscious in knowing when you're making a choice. Yeah. And, and so again, in, in a field, in a field of energy, the, the potential is one whole. So it's always one potential future. Whatever choice we make is still a limitation of that potential. So there are consequences to all the choices, but there, there, there are some consequences we can actually live with, some we can't. <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, not, it's, not, it's not that the choice is wrong. It's the choice is saying... Every choice is an initiation either into more life or more death. Some choices cause more harm than others Mm -hmm. because it's still about life and death, coming back to our original point. Mm -hmm. It's still about initiation. So what are we really willing to live with? It's not just a matter of of choosing a better thing. Uh, It's still going to be initiation. We're going to still have hard work to do in all the choices we make. But some choices will allow us to actually be inspired because more, more life is in it. Others not. Yeah. I think that's a beautiful ending for this particular session. Yeah. Every choice is a, ch- every choice is a choice between more life or more death. Is that what you yes. said? Yes. 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 And I'm just going to carry that. I'm going to carry that with me as, as a uh, kind of a mantra. And notice whether it's true or not. <laughs> <laughs> it's research. I love it, Charles. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much, Orland. Oh, um, bro. Thank you. It's, like, it's always been a pleasure to interact and engage this kind of field with you. Thank you. Yes. You're welcome, and, and uh, greetings to all those who were shared with you. Thanks. Thank you for giving your attention to it. This has been A New and Ancient Story with your host, Charles Eisenstein. 
I offer this podcast in the spirit of the gift, by which I mean that I don't withhold premium content for a price or put up paywalls or do affiliate marketing or have advertising or anything like that. Instead, I rely on supporters like you. If you would like to support it, you can subscribe at charleseisenstein.net for a small monthly amount, or you can subscribe for free as well. Either way, you get the same content, everything's the same, and you'll be notified every time a new podcast comes out. Also on the site, you can find archived episodes along with everything else that I produce, essays, books, videos, online courses. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll be with you again next time.